0: This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between.
1: spring into pre-emergent weed control action for canola and pulse crops with edge Microactive. powerful group three action takes out the broadest assortment of grass and broadleaf weeds including kochia wild buckwheat and barnyard grass before they can take over your crop use edge microactive as a part of your herbicide layering program to help maximize yields today and manage resistance tomorrow go to ca.gowanco.com for details always read and follow label directions from gowan company
0: Welcome, everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley, and I'll be your host for this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Ben Rosser. He's a corn specialist with OMAFRA. Ben, welcome to Inputs.
1: Thanks, Dylan. Uh, Thanks to your interest.
0: Yeah, I imagine a lot of people are super interested in hearing about this week's topic, which is getting into the, the growing season for corn and just kind of the Uh, things that we need to keep in mind when uh, we decide that we want to do corn and before we even get uh, getting into the field. But before we kind of uh, jump into that, I just want to talk about specifically corn production in Ontario. Um, So corn is a pretty popular crop, but what areas in Ontario are the predominant corn growing
1: regions? Yeah, so be predominantly, you know, southwestern Ontario, what we call central Ontario. So, you know, kind of uh, between Toronto and Ottawa, and then up into the Ottawa Valley, uh, you know, generally speaking, that's where a major portion of ag is in Ontario. That said, there's also pockets when you get into northern Ontario and some areas in western, like northwestern Ontario, as well. There would there would be a little bit of corn grown as well. Um, but yeah, those would kind of represent the, the majority of, uh, of areas where, where corn would be grown.
0: So, and then how much corn is actually grown in Ontario? How much acres are actually seeded? And then what are the kind of yields or economic values that we see on a yearly basis for corn?
1: Yeah. So if you went to our OMAPRs crop stats website, uh, we try to post all that stuff. And so kind of our five-year average for grain corn would be 2.1 million acres And then we usually have kind of 10 to 15% of that is silage corn as well. So again, our five-year average for silage corn would be about 275,000 acres, somewhere around there. Uh, Again, if you looked at our our average yields, you know, the average five-year yield in Ontario is 166 bushels an acre. And for silage, it'd be about 19 tons per acre. So again, if if you put some dollar numbers to that, you know, we're a little under $2 billion worth for grain corn. And then about... $200 million uh, when you put dollars to silage corn.
0: Yeah. So nothing uh, too insignificant there for corn production in Ontario.
1: For sure. Like in Ontario, corn is a big driver for Ontario egg. What type of things should a producer that wants to do corn
0: this year have in mind before they even kind of get into their field?
1: Yeah. So I think the majority of growers would be in some type of rotation. So they would likely already be growing corn somewhere on their farm. In most years, they would have corn somewhere. So, yeah, and, you know, when you talk rotation. So, again, I said we're a little over 2 million acres of corn. We're, you know, a little under a million acres of wheat, somewhere 2.5 to 3 million acres of soybeans. So, um, you know, we don't have the perfect textbook rotation. We always talk about a corn-soybean-wheat rotation, or maybe you might be in a corn-soybean rotation. Um, but there's also a number of, uh, of acres that were even some corn on corn if you're a livestock producer, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah. In terms of thoughts, I mean, you know, the, usually the biggest question when we're talking uh, rotation, you know, folk focuses around tillage. So, you know, obviously, if you're in a high residue crop, there tends to be more response for for tillage. If you're trying to grow corn, um, so you know, coming out of winter wheat, especially if residue hasn't been removed or that sort of thing, or if you're in a corn-on-corn corn rotation, compare that to you know uh, uh, forage or hay land or soybean land where you know we. We expect the responses to tillage to be a lot less or you can get away with a lot less tillage you know usually residue management tillage is the big question if you're talking rotations I think outside of that you know the other thought would be you know especially if you're a corn on corn grower kind of an emerging issue in Ontario is corn rootworm resistance so um, you know second year corn there's a risk but the longer and longer you've got continuous corn in a rotation the more established they become and the more of a risk it is so it was always an issue and there was insecticides and stuff to, to work with it in the past but uh you know lately the or in the more recent past the, the focus has been a lot more on uh on using traded you know corn with traits to help control uh control rootworm uh but there's been some I mean, again it's not a widespread thing and it's been in the us for a while longer than it has been ontario but there are cases of resistance starting to bubble up with corn rootworm, so Again, if you're thinking rotation and, and that sort of thing, definitely corn rootworm is one thing to watch for. Even if you've got traded products, again, not like it's widespread, but there's some instances bubbling up uh, in Ontario, especially corn-on-corn on corn heavy areas, so heavier livestock areas, where uh, where that's something that has to be watched for.
0: Right. I'm glad you brought up corn rootworm because, yes, that is a very difficult pest um, or lately just with those increased uh, susceptibility to resistance. And that kind of leads into uh, what kind of corn that you're actually going to be seeding or what kind of hybrid that you're going to be selecting. What other kind of considerations should a farmer be looking into when they're actually deciding what to seed?
1: Yeah, so I think if you talk to any grower, you know, the the first major one is just general maturity. You know, what are you gonna select for uh, maturity for your area? And depending on how you're using the corn or where you are, or, you know, if you've got a drier set up to dry corn, it might tip you one scale of the you know, do you stay in a bit of a drier side or are you willing to push things and take some risk? Uh, you know, if you've got high moisture corn or can handle high moisture corn, maybe you're willing to go a bit longer, but, you know, in general, you know, what kind of maturity are you looking at? And then, you know, within that, I think the big one, obviously that pays the bills is yield. So I think, you know, yield is definitely a major driver in terms of selecting hybrids. Um, but again, coming down to, you know, yield is good, but at the end of the day, what really matters is dollars. So some of those things are going to impact your dollars like moisture. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, within a general maturity, you've got some different hybrid options, but, you know, say there's some, that are just a lot better to dry down at a similar yield level than others. You know, that maybe tips you a little bit, uh, in one way or the other, if, if you can save on drying costs. And then from then on, I think it would just be the agronomics of those hybrids. So, you know, uh, if you're looking at diseases, typically when we're looking at, uh, at hybrids and trying to select against diseases, you know, in Ontario, uh, ear rots are a big issue for us, trying to make quality grain, whether it's for livestock or, or other end uses where, uh, where mycotoxins are an issue. Um, so, you know, trying to select hybrids that generally have a, uh, are known to be cleaner in the fall is definitely one selection point kind of a new one that's just coming up here the last couple of years and I think will be important in this upcoming year. Uh, we'll get to be a better understanding of tar spot. So uh, it's a new disease for North America, even, you know, even for us in Ontario. Um, you know, we've only had the last year or two in the province. Um, so there's maybe still some stuff to be learned and what hybrids are good and that sort of thing. But definitely, you know, disease resistance and tar spot in particular will be important going forwards. You know, I think going uh, going beyond there is if you're just looking at traits. So, you know, I already talked about, you know, corn rootworm traits and things like that, if those are important. Or in some cases too, there's uh, there's a bit of non-GMO market for corn now in uh, in some areas with some end users. So um, conventional corn might be uh, an, an interest or a criteria for growers if they're interested in that type of market too. Um, yeah, so I think those would kind of be the, the guiding factors that most growers in the province will be looking at. Um, again, if you're on the you're feeding livestock and you're a corn silage person, you know, there's, uh, some traits out there for life for corn silage as well, both, you know, GM, like I talked about with uh, corn rootworm resistance and things like that. Um, but as well as, you know, non GM traits as well for, uh, for digestibility and starch and things like that. And some of the hybrid or corn silage specific hybrids.
0: For sure. So, um, going into this year or even, thinking about last year are there some sort of or i guess are there more preferred varieties that uh that you can speak of uh both i guess gm and non-gm
1: yeah so there's lots of options there's you know a large number of companies that market hybrids in ontario and lots of options within the different maturities and that sort of thing so yeah I, i wouldn't have specific recommendations but there's definitely tools out there uh for growers to get that information so uh, again starting at the top of the list in ontario we have the ontario corn committee which has been around for uh for decades and uh, you know the goal is to do hybrid testing in a, a large number of corn growing environments in ontario so we kind of stretch from the deep southwest like in essex county up into uh towards the ottawa valley in kind of the eastern part of the province so um again growers can go to gocorn.net and and look at that data and it's I think the nice thing about it is you get a head-to-head comparison of a lot of hybrids from a lot of companies, which you wouldn't necessarily find on farm data. So that's definitely a pro. You know, some growers, uh, if, you know, if they have some complaints about that would be that it doesn't necessarily get close to their farms or on their soil types or that sort of thing. So that's where it kind of comes in nicely. If you also look at some seed company data or your local seed dealer or input supplier, who's maybe got some local data looking at a subset of some of the The locally uh, popular hybrids as well, so I think those uh, there's pros and cons to all all three of those data sources, and they all can kind of work nicely when a grower is trying to decide what hybrid are we going to look at on our farm. And again, I think you know testing on farm, especially when you're looking at a new hybrid, um, maybe on a limited acreage to see if it works for you and if there's any weaknesses in that in that hybrid and that sort of thing. You know, there's there's nothing better than on farm data on your own farm. Great. Well, yeah, just
0: already, just by what you're just talking about there, it sounds like there's a lot of different resources available. Maybe a producer might have to use one or two or even all of them, and unoptimally for when they're choosing their hybrid. But it sounds like there are just uh, numerous amounts of resources made available, which is fantastic to hear. So now let's just put our minds into a hypothetical producer. They've gone through and they've selected their hybrid and now they're looking to seed, uh, what kind of things or what traits or things, uh, uh, influence, uh, seeding date?
1: Yeah. So I think the overarching factor is probably ground conditions, you know, are we able to plant and then, uh, and then after that would just in general, what's our date. So, you know, there was, I think it was last spring. You know, we were in uh, in late March, early April already. We hadn't had a lot of rainfall, snow kind of melted off and dry, the ground had dried up. There were some growers already doing tillage and there's probably ground you could have planted if you wanted to. So I think the very first thing is just general ground condition. So again, if, if ground just happens to be fit, that's unusual for Ontario to have ground conditions fit, you know, early April already. But uh, if you're in that scenario, um, you probably still wouldn't go ahead because there's still risks associated with the calendar date. So, you know, I think, once ground's fit it kind of comes down to your risk tolerance so if ground's fit and it's mid to later april uh i think some growers would probably maybe start to put a little bit in there's there's always some risks trying to go ultra early if we get really backwards weather or that sort of thing um especially if you have a really susceptible hybrid that's known to be susceptible or just can't take the early season um stresses associated with early planting so uh you know in some of those cases maybe some of those hybrids would wait until uh until a little bit later, um, but yeah, you know, if, if things open up and even mid to you know second last week, last week of April, certainly there's growers that are, are going to start planting corn by that time. If, I think if you look at the data, you know, we wouldn't say there's any additional benefit to planting that uh, that extra early. You know, we wouldn't see more yield increases for a given hybrid. Maybe the one exception to that is if you really want to push heat units and you think that ultra early planning might give you another maybe 100 CHUs to work within that growing season, maybe you could squeak a bit of extra yield out if you push maturity more than what you normally would. But uh, generally, generally speaking, we wouldn't say there's any enhanced yield for planning extra early. Um, I think once you get into, uh, you know, once you get a little bit later in the season, so we would usually say kind of mid May, by that point, you know, yields are maybe starting to decrease as you're going along later in the season. Um, but uh, for those early ones, you wouldn't necessarily say there's an advantage, but certainly from a timeliness perspective, you know, getting uh, the crop off in the fall in a timely manner, you know, maybe reducing drying costs. Obviously, there's some other advantages like that with uh, with trying to get some you know, early planting in, but again i think balancing the pros and cons the last thing i think it depends on what you've got in terms of planting pressure you know if you only need a couple days to plant your corn crop and you're worried about risks of going in too early then maybe you'd hold off a bit but if you've got a lot of acres to cover and it takes you a week to get all your corn crop in or longer then you know maybe you're going to start putting a little bit more early in and and take that risk uh, compared to a grower who's maybe not quite as crunched for uh, for time so yeah i think a lot of those would kind of be the factors that uh Uh, would be affecting a typical grower in Ontario.
0: Right. And I just want to cycle back a little bit because you talked about um, early season environmental conditions. And the first thing that comes to my mind will be an early spring cold snap. Um, How impactful can this kind of early cold uh, be for an early seeded corn? And what are potentially some kind of management practices that a producer could use or implement if uh, cold weather is, uh, forecasted.
1: Yeah. So actually the last two years, we've had some good tests of that. I think it was, it was both years when we got kind of into the, the first, maybe into the second week of may. And then all of a sudden we got some backwards weather. So, you know, nighttime temperatures below zero, uh, some snow, I think both this past year and the year before then as well, where, you know, a large, a large amount of corn had already been planted. I think, you know, kind of the textbook traditional answer was, you know, once you see that weather in the forecast, is to stop planning, you know, 24 to 48 hours ahead of time, you know, generally with the idea that, again, kind of the traditional textbook answer being you don't want corn's first drink of water when you're trying to get germination to establish or when you're trying to get germination, you know, to be a really cold drink of water, you know, we, we try to avoid that. I think the one interesting thing out of these last couple of years has been that, you know, some growers who just drove on right up to the event as long as they could um, managed to get away with it in a lot of cases. And I think part of it just came down to what were ground conditions like. So I'm particularly thinking about 2020 when we had one of these events that, you know, there's a lot of growers that kept planning as long as they could right up until that wet weather event. And they seemed to get out of it okay. But I think the one thing about 2020 when that happened was, you know, ground conditions were really fit ahead of time. Um, you know, they weren't really wet and saturated. They maybe got a little bit of that after the event, but I think ground conditions were in pretty good shape and it maybe didn't impact things quite as much in 2020 as what it maybe does in another year. But uh, certainly there were some growers who you know, were able to not follow that 24 to 48 hour advice, but still made out. Okay. I think the one exception would be in the one big lesson we learned in 2020 is if you really do want to push things and keep going. Um, again, if you've got a hybrid, that's just known to be weaker for some of those early season stresses, just leave that hybrid in the shed until after that event passes and then plant it after that. Again, if we're talking risks, I think that's a pretty low hanging fruit that, you know, if you really, if you've got the feeling, you just really like to push things. If, when it comes to those hybrids, just at least leave those ones out of it until afterwards, you know, I think that would probably make a big difference in terms of what kind of risk you're taking on if you are trying to push planting ahead of a, a cold weather snap. But yeah, I think those would kind of be the main learning points, uh, again, with some events we had in the last couple of years and from a frost perspective, you know, corn's relatively tolerant, the growing point remains under the ground until you get to about six leaf stage. So we can lose some top growth or have some top growth burnt off and still have the crop recover in most cases. Uh, you know, when you get to that four five, six leaf stage.
0: For sure. And I love that uh, kind of verbiage, a cold drink of water. And one kind of thing when we're thinking about after you see it and trying to get uh, your your corn germinated is planting depth and just actually making sure the moisture gets down to the seed. Uh, What kind of factors uh, influence the seeding depth that a producer might use? And could you also touch on maybe what's the optimal uh, seeding depth for corn?
1: Sure. Yeah. So the real critical thing to maintain yields in corn is uniform development. So you want all the plants to kind of develop at the same stage. You don't want runt plants left behind. You don't want a lot of plant to plant variability. You want uniform germination and growth and, and, uh, and development. So the foundation of that is getting all those plants to germinate at the, uh, at the same time and to grow and emerge at the same time. So when it comes to planting, that's really, you know, getting into moisture is absolutely critical for corn, you know? Um, So yeah, whatever you can do to get into moisture again in Ontario, usually when we're in springs, we're usually in the springtime. We're always in a, uh, you know, we're always trying to get rid of moisture. Moisture is rarely ever a limiting factor in the springtime for us in Ontario. So depending on your soil type, you know, usually we're not too concerned about, uh, about moisture levels, but again, the important thing is to make sure all those kernels are getting well placed into moisture so they can all germinate at the, uh, the same time. So I think if everything was perfect and you had a planter that guarantee 100% of the time you're getting exact, um, exact, you know, placement or planting depth, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, you know, you could maybe say one and a half inches would be the right, uh, the right number. But again, there's always variability across fields. And I should say one and a half inches, assuming you've got moisture there. If you don't have moisture there, you'd go deeper. But um, if you've got moisture, you probably don't want to be much less than that. But again, you know, everything's not perfect. You know, planters aren't exactly uniform. So you can still end up with plants that are a little bit shallower. So there's been some recent work done here in Ontario that's shown that, you know, they looked at deep, ultra deep planting. So they went as deep as three inches, which I think traditionally we would never say to plant corn that deep. But, you know, it seemed as long as you're on a medium to lighter textured soil and, you know, something with some good structure and good soil conditions, you know, good soil fitness when you're planting, it was kind of surprising that even planting as deep as three inches for the most part and, you know, a a field with good conditions, uh, didn't seem to have a big impact on germination and maybe almost led to more uniform plant stands in those kind of fields. So. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at that research, certainly it wouldn't make one to be afraid to go two or two and a half inches or uh, maybe three if if you're in really good conditions to make sure you're consistently in a moisture. Yeah, whatever you can do to consistently get into moisture, um, you know, that is really critical for getting a good start with a corn crop.
0: For sure. Just making sure, like you said, that they get that that drink of water at some point in time uh, during that critical uh, germination period. Ready to gear up. Farm Credit Canada Ag Expert wants you to drive away in a new Polaris
1: Ranger side by side. Enter the Gear Up contest when you sign up for Ag Expert Accounting or Ag Expert Field. It's free. This is your chance to get amazing farm
0: management software and enter to win a 2022 Polaris Ranger premium. Hurry! The Gear Up with Ag Expert contest deadline is March 31st. Learn
1: more at agexpert.ca slash gear up.
0: Have you worked with, been mentored by, or been inspired by a woman in agriculture? The Influential Women in Canadian Agriculture program is back for 2022, and we want to hear from you. Presented by the agriculture brands at Annex Business Media, IWCA will honor six women who are making a difference in Canada's agriculture sector, whether they're producers, researchers, educators, advocates, entrepreneurs, or more. Through articles, podcasts, and a half-day virtual summit in the fall, we will tell their stories and pass along their advice for the next generation of women in agriculture. Go to agwomen.ca to nominate an influential woman today. That's A-G-W-O-M-E-N.ca. So one other thing um, just r- with regard to seeding is also the width of the rows that a producer would use. What um, kind of row width or how narrow should a producer be looking t- uh, when they're seeding their corn?
1: yeah so i think if you look at the vast majority of planters not only in ontario but most of the corn belt you know or would be you know your standard row width. probably 85 or 90 percent of acres would be your 30 inch corn rows um you know there is there definitely are areas or growers in the province that do a little bit narrower so usually if you're narrower in ontario for the most part you'd be talking 20 inch rows and there's work out there that suggests there is a small benefit or small yield gain for going to 20 inch rows so you see different numbers, but you know, you hear two, three, maybe 4% yield increase for 20 inch rows. Um, But of course the one challenge there is if you're putting more row units on uh, an implement, it's going to increase the cost of that implement a fair bit. And if you're comparing it to being in 30 inch rows, you've also got to change some tires and other things as well. And then not only are you changing your, your planner you've got to change your your header on your combine and things like that as well so there's a number of expenses that go along with trying to go to narrower rows if you think you can capture that two or three or four percent yield gain so um maybe the last factor too being if you rely on custom work so maybe you plant your own crops but you rely on a neighbor with the combine you there's a lot fewer 20 inch row growers out there if you're going to rely on custom works so that's a risk as well so um i think you know Growers have to do that cost-benefit analysis. Certainly, so there's growers that have done that and feel that's definitely a win for them and 20 inches is where they are, but uh, you know the vast majority of acres in Ontario still would be in, in a 30-inch row setup.
0: Right, and one last thing before we move on from uh, our seeding topic here is the unfortunate decision that a producer might have to replant uh, their corn in their field. Uh, what kind of decisions drive this um for replanting and when is it almost too late for a producer to replant
1: yeah so it really comes down to balancing what is the yield potential of your current stand compared to if you came in and replanted that uh field so you know obviously you maybe you've got some issues because you lost some population from you know poor conditions or maybe you planted a hybrid that didn't do well um, with a cold you know snow event that followed after planting or that sort of thing and you've got some some population loss, so you've got to balance. You know what is the yield potential of that compromised stand compared to coming in at a later date and trying to replant. Of course, by the time you get a really good handle on what the final stand is going to be, you know we're several weeks into the growing season already. You know you're maybe mid to later uh, May before you really know that information, and uh, you know planning that later, depending where you are in the province, we know that you're going to incur some yield loss. So you've already given up some yield there. So um, that is the balance. There is a tool again. If you go to gocorn.net, there's an there's an Ontario Corn Replant Decision Aid that growers can look at. It's based on real Ontario generated data. So they looked at population data to see you know how low of a population you have to get before yields are starting to get hit really badly, and they also looked at planting dates. So again, they did a number of populations planted from May first into late May to see what is the yield potential or what's the what's our decline in potential yields as you go to a later planting date and uh, it helps actually drive some of those numbers. I think generally speaking, you know, corn definitely has some flex in terms of, you know, being you know, be able, being able to lose some population, but still maintain relatively good yields. So, you know, you do have to take a fair bit of a hit before I think yields really start to take a lot of a hit. Yeah. And of course, the other thing is too, with corn, you know, it's not like some other crops like soybeans where you can just kind of go in and patch things up. Again, when we talked about the uniform development thing, that first stand has to be removed before you can replant. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have issues with that replant actually doing anything. So, you know, there's costs involved with another herbicide pass coming in with the planter, depending if you have, uh, you know, some seed companies I think will, uh, will offer free seed for replant. I'm not sure that I'll do that. So if you have seed costs to come back, that's another big cost too that's going to impact the, that decision. So I think those are all things that have to be weighed. And again, if you want some actual numbers in terms of uh, of yield potential of a lower population stand or planting late, because, you know, you don't know what, uh, that you had to replant until maybe the 25th of May, um, there is that replant calculator that'll, have, that'll actually give you some numbers to guide, uh, guide some of those decisions.
0: And again, I'm just fascinated that there's already a resource ready and available that producers can uh, use if they're uh, faced with this kind of, uh, untimely decision, uh, early in the season. So I, I guess we're going on and we're talking about more costs, uh, this time with regard to fertility and nutrient management. So outside of just the general costs of fertilizers, what other kind of, uh, factors drive a specific fertilizer regime or treatment schedule in corn?
1: Yeah. So I think if we're talking uh, like P and K, you know, nutrients that you can kind of bank in your soil, you know, just having an idea of what your soil test is in general is an important step. It's not dead perfect, but it gives you a pretty good idea in terms of what what you'd expect in terms of response potential in your field. So, you know, even when fertilizer prices are high, if you've got really, really low soil tests in your field, we would still expect a pretty good, uh, pretty good probability of getting a, a high yield response the fertilizer in those scenarios. So even with expensive fertilizers, you know, it still is a good investment if you are at a very low responsive soil test. If you're at a quite high soil test, we typically apply some anyways because you don't want to reduce that soil test. You know, maybe it's a year you could get away with applying less if you're not going to expect a yield response in this year. If you're just trying to kind of maintain that, uh, that bank account. Uh, but yeah, for sure, you know, when we we're talking P and K and things like that, you know, soil testing or having at least some records of soil test is, is a really important factor in making those decisions. You know, when it comes to nitrogen, again, there's a, a corn nitrogen calculator that you can go and add a bunch of factors. So things like previous crop and if you've removed residue, what your expected yield is going to be and if you have any credits for nitrogen. So if you've put manure down in the past, if you're coming after alfalfa or red clover, which are proven to release nitrogen to the following corn crop. Um, those are all factors that are, that are going to go into play in terms of what your right rate is. Again, these tools are good to go by and get a decision. But again, the, the best data for a grower to make those decisions is, is on farm data. So I think they're good as a starting point, but they're never going to be 100% accurate for every acre. So I think it's going to give you a starting point. You know, do a couple tests on farm, uh, you know, your normal rate plus 30 pounds, your normal rate less 30 pounds and see if you're getting more response or not losing yield. If you pull N rates back to, you know, kind of fine tune what those, uh, what those numbers are.
0: Right. And going into probably one of the more important nutrients that's nitrogen, what other tips can you provide just when a producer has to, uh, I guess, decide how much nitrogen they are going to use? You already mentioned the importance of soil testing and just looking at your rate guidelines, but what else can you um, suggest?
1: Yeah. So again, with nitrogen, we do have a, a pre side dress nitrate test where you can go in and get an idea. You know, in general, give you an idea. If you're not 100% sure what the supplying capability of that field is, it'll give you an idea of, you know, is this field usually tests really low in in nitrogen or does it have a quite high nitrate level, suggesting it has a really good supplying capability. If you've been in the field long-term, you've maybe already got a pretty good handle on that. But if it's a field you're not sure about, or you've never tried changing N rates around, and you're just curious, you know, what kind of, Generally speaking, what's the supplying capability of this field like? Uh, that's kind of a nice part where that the PSNT will come into play. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, from some recent work done by Dr. Bill Dean at uh, University of Guelph, he, he just retired, but from some work he did at, a, at the Allura Research Station, you know, rainfall seems to be a really big driver from kind of the June 15th to July 15th uh, window in terms of driving yields, at least at Allura. And uh, what the yields were a lower were a big driver of what the optimal nitrogen rate was as well. So I think kind of looking at that window and saying, you know, what does our yield potential look like? If we've got the ability to come in crop or we've made the decision, we're going to come in crop with nitrogen. Um, can we adjust nitrogen rates based on that? So if you're on an exceptionally droughty soil, we haven't had a lot of rainfall in that time. And we think yields have been compromised. Maybe you really ratchet the rates back down uh, if you're coming into then, but if you're, Coming into a year like 2021, where we had lots of rainfall in that period, planting conditions were excellent, crop uniformity in most cases looked great. So, you know, yield potential looked awesome. And maybe you say, well, I think we're going to really big corn crop out of this field this year. Maybe we can bump end rates up uh, based on that. Again, it's a, it's a bit of a crystal ball look, but, uh, but certainly those are some of the tools that you can use to try to maybe guide some of those decisions. If you want to make adjustments uh, year to year or field to field.
0: Definitely. And the last thing that I'd like to talk about today, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the pest pressure that one might expect uh, in their cornfield. So when should a producer start scouting for things like insects or some kind of fungal disease in their in their field?
1: Yeah. So it'd be kind of be a, not a, yeah, a, a large majority of the growing season, depending on the pest and what you're looking for. You know, if you're talking soil pests like wireworms or uh, maybe seed corn maggots or some things like that. Uh, you know, that's an early season thing and you're looking for some stand loss early on. Or when I talked about uniformity of plants, you know, one of the best times to scout is probably at that kind of two, three, four leaf stage, because you can look for those gaps in the corn saying, okay, well, why is that plant not coming up? And you can dig and say, well, there's no seed there. So maybe it's a planter issue, or there was seed there, but I've got some pests that have been eating those plants. Or, uh, if you've got plants are delayed, Again, that could be a pest issue as well. So if you're looking for kind of those soil pests early on, they're going to impact things, you know, that's probably the best time to go looking for them. Uh, Of course, if the pests you're looking for are more later season insects or when you're going to see them, like, you know, corn rootworm injury wouldn't show up until later in the season. Once those plants have started to maybe lodge, if the root feeding has been excessive um, or, you know, trying to rip up some roots and look at them and that sort of thing for feeding as well, that would be a later season thing. Um, And then I think our big one that we've talked about for the last decade in Ontario or more is, um, is Western bean cutworm. Again, if you're scouting for that, typically it's kind of when usually we're, we're tracking moth flights because the moths are coming in laying eggs. Um, So usually you'll try to time your scouting by the moth flights. Um, But again, usually that's kind of talking maybe later, uh, later July in that case, a lot. And then just watching for development, those larvae in the field. So maybe coming in late August, early September to see if there was actually uh, um, Western being cutworm that established in the field and looking for them before they drop down back into soil, you know, kind of mid September timeframe. So yeah, I think those would be kind of your, your key timings looking for pest issues, um, and disease. Yeah. Again, you know, traditionally when we're talking foliar disease and things like that, it's kind of a grain fill staging thing. If we're, We're going out to try to get a handle on what things are like. Um, But with things like tire spot, or if you're in a corn and corn scenario where some of those diseases might show up a little bit earlier, you know, you could be even in the, you know, looking, starting to watch for those things in July, even uh, for some of that sort of thing. But uh, but yeah, typically more of a later season grain fill, maybe soaking on kind of thing. If you're looking for, uh, for, for leaf diseases in most cases.
0: Great. Well, Ben, we talked about such, like vast kind of considerations that a corn producer might have to think about in Ontario before they get in the field. But if you were to pick a couple things that we talked about today, what are the big kind of takeaways uh, that a grower should be thinking about going into uh, this growing season for two thousand
1: and twenty two? Yeah, so I think there'd be kind of a couple key points. I think mean, the first one is just you know, if you haven't looked into it already, get to know tire spot for corn so. Again, it's a new disease for North America. Um, there's variability in terms of tolerance for hybrids. You know, there's some that are can handle it better than others and some that are really susceptible. Um, there's no true resistance for, for tar spot at to, at this point. So, you know, getting to know that disease, what to look for, how to manage it, and that sort of thing, I think would be critical for Gora going into 2022. There's no guarantees it's going to flare up and be bad. Like all diseases, it depends on having the right environment for it to do that. Um, But if we got into a year where things were good, traditionally, you know, a bit cooler, wetter type weather, then, uh, you know, it it could be an issue. But uh, again, understanding tar spot, I think, would be really important. Uh, I think the other one would be, you know, this has kind of been developing um, the last couple of years is understanding corn rootworm resistance. So if you've grown corn on corn uh, or, you know, have several years of corn in in some fields, uh, just knowing what to watch for, for, uh, for corn rootworm feeding injury. And, uh, and knowing when there could be an issue developing in a field. So again, I think that's an important factor. And again, I think the last point I would mention for 2022 just comes down to fertilizer prices. You know, obviously that's been the big story here this winter. For nitrogen, I think it's kind of surprising. You know, even though we've had maybe almost a doubling of nitrogen fertilizer costs, um, if you play around with the numbers, you look at a nitrogen response curve, You know, the the optimum rate of nitrogen really doesn't change as much as what you think it would be if you have nitrogen prices double. You know, you don't have to cut back on nitrogen rates much where your yield impact can start to be fairly steep. So, you know, playing around with some numbers, we've said maybe, you know, uh, maybe you would pull back 20, 15, maybe 25 pounds of N per acre uh, based on the difference in prices now compared to what they would have been over the long term. What the optimum rate? Is, what the optimum rate is really depends on the year and that sort of thing as well. So that's going to have a play, uh, probably more so than prices. But if you're adjusting solely on price, the price changes, you know, it's, it's maybe not as a significant adjustment as what we think. And again, still on the PK story, you know, if you're on low testing soil, even with expensive fertilizer, uh, it can still be a pretty good return on investment to uh, to put those fertilizers on in uh, in highly responsive cases. Maybe uh, maybe you could take a year off if you're not going to expect a, a yield response, but uh, certainly uh, still potential for good returns on investment despite those costs being high. And again, just to, to round off on that, you know, if if you're planting corn after alfalfa for red clover, or putting manure applications on, and you don't typically uh, credit any of those any nitrogen, um, you know, I think it would be a good year to consider some nitrogen credit for those uh, those. Uh, those contributions, if you don't normally do so. But yeah, I would say those would kind of be the top three things to consider uh, if you're going to grow looking towards 2022 as a corn grower.
0: Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, where can people find you if they want to contact you for more
1: information? Yeah, so if you Google my name, Ben Rosser, you'll find my contact information at the Omafir website. Um, some of the tools we talked about are available at gocorn.net. And uh, if we're posting articles on this stuff, you know, most of that stuff we post at our website at uh, fieldcropnews.com.
0: Awesome. Again, Ben, thank you so much for joining me this week on Inputs.
1: No problem. Happy to join you, Dylan.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.